Chapter 28 of 40,000 Miles Over Land and Water. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by Jennifer Painter. 40,000 Miles Over Land and Water by Ethel Gwendolyn Vincent. Cities of the Great Mogul, Part 3. Tuesday, January the 27th. We drove along the mall of the civil lines, where was lying the encampment of a collector or other provincial officer, travelling on his annual round of inspection. We passed under the battered portals of the Kashmir Gate, so famed for its noble defence during the mutiny. Just on the other side of this is Skinner's Church. Colonel Skinner married first, as was natural, an Englishwoman and built this church. But secondly, he married a Mohammedan, and then the mosque opposite was built. But last of all, he espoused a Hindu, when the Hindu temple, a little way off, came into existence. He used to say that when he died, he would be sure of going to the heaven of the best religion. Delhi has a fort containing a palace, a diwas e kaz a Diwas-e-Am, a pearl mosque and a jama mujid similar and in the same position as at agra but all with the exception of the mosque are but a feeble reproduction of the latter shah jahan as we know founded delhi but the works he accomplished were but a feeble and poor imitation of those of his noble grandfather akbar at agra the four splendid gateways of the fort with their grand red colouring and coping of domes would appear to be copied from the gateway of the Taj. We entered by the Lahore Gate, and passed under the vaulted causeway known as the Chattas, or Umbrella of the King, and where the military bazaar now maintains a certain air of picturesqueness. The Diwan e Am, the Hall of Public Audience, is the usual marble loggia. It has only a cumbrous canopy of marble over the marble throne, but the wall behind is most beautifully inlaid with mosaic. The colours are still extraordinarily bright and show the green plumage of the parakeets, the blue of the hummingbirds, while groups of flowers and clusters of fruit complete a rare panel of beauty. The Dewan Ikaz, or Hall of Private Audience, is at present disfigured by trusses of hay wrapped round the inlaid pillars whilst the work of reparation is being carried on. Government proposes to spend three lakhs of rupees in restoring the original marvels that existed of gold and silver filigree work, the pillars having been plated with sheets of gold and the ceiling covered with silver. It is estimated that this ceiling, which was part of the spoil of the Mahratta invasion of 1759, produced a hundred and seventy thousand pounds worth of silver. The inscription in the corner of the ceiling is the well-known and very beautiful If there is a paradise on earth, it is here, it is here, it is here. The famous peacock throne was in this hall. The throne was six feet long and four feet broad, composed of solid gold inlaid with precious gems. The back was formed of jewelled representations of peacock's tails. It was surmounted by a gold canopy on twelve pillars of the same material. 
Around the canopy hung a fringe of pearls, and on each side of the throne stood two chattas, or umbrellas, the symbol of royalty. They were formed of crimson velvet, richly embroidered with gold thread and pearls, and had handles, eight feet long, of solid gold studded with diamonds. This unparalleled achievement of the jeweller's art was constructed by a Frenchman, Austin de Bordeaux. The value of the throne is estimated by Tavernier, himself a professional jeweller, at six million pounds sterling. The peacock throne was taken away by the Persian, Nadir Shah. Then we were taken to the palace and into a little room, three-cornered in shape and with its windows open towards the river. Inlaid in mosaic there is here the sweet little inscription. Sigh not, for good times are at hand. The scales of justice are represented in another place in inlaid marbles over the trellis door, which leads into the Zenana. Here every care has been lavished upon the beauty of the decoration of the various rooms, though the red and green flowers and running patterns look coarse and gorgeous to our eyes, so lately accustomed to the delicacy and minuteness of the Agra Pietra Dura. Here again we see how Shah Jahan failed to produce the minute beauty of Akbar's palace. Still, the colour is interesting for being so well preserved, showing out as if it was finished but yesterday, and one is glad to see that any attempt was made to lighten the prison house and the dull lives of its inmates. The bathrooms, as in all eastern palaces, are the great feature and occupy the largest portion of this palace. Running round the centre room there is a shallow channel inlaid with an ingenious serpenting pattern in black, and the water coursing swiftly over this produces the effect of fishes swimming about in the water. In other rooms we see the children's smaller baths and the shower bath formed by a fountain springing up through the floor. The centre hall contains a pool inlaid with jade. It was here the ladies came to drink after the bath, and the water filtering through the holes of jade was supposed to be purified and cooled by it. This was an old eastern idea, for we are told that kings always had their drinking cups of jade. The bath in the king's apartments had hot and cold water laid on, and was used by the Prince of Wales when on his visit to Delhi. The Pearl Mosque is an almost perfect model in miniature proportions of the Moti Mujid of Agra, but this one was kept only for the use of the king and his family. The paving of this court is very pretty, the squares being indicated by double black lines, and those under the mosque are fringed at the top with three delicate sprays of jasmine flowers. The remainder of the fort is occupied by the barracks of our troops. Passing out between the formidable spikes of the Delhi Gate, we drive up before the Jama Musjid, the finest mosque in India. It is called Jama, or the Friday Mosque, because Friday is the sacred day of the week according to the Muslim religion. Escaping two albino beggars, most repulsive objects, we ascend up the magnificent flight of broad, shallow steps, those steps which on three sides form such a splendid approach to the imposing grandeur within. The wooden gates at the entrance are interesting on account of their immense thickness and their age, 
which is over 200 years. When inside the court, we see that it is entirely paved with white marble, with black lines, which has a very striking effect when extended over such a vast space. In the centre, there is the usual marble reservoir, where some Mohammedans are washing their feet preparatory to praying. Three cupolas of white marble, crowned by gilded coulisses, rise over the red arches, and pillars that form the open loggia of the mosque. The centre cupola is partly hidden by the great square of the principal entrance, in which the pointed Gothic arch is splendidly described. The cornices of this pointed archway are divided into ten compartments, each ten feet broad, which contain inscriptions in black marble on a white ground. Following the usual construction, the two minarets that flank the mosque seem almost of an exaggerated height. They are inlaid with the white and red marble stripes placed vertically, and are, as always, the pride and beauty of the city. For miles around, their graceful proportions can be seen isolated, reaching towards the sky, when all other parts of the city are unseen. A colonnade of red sandstone surrounds the court, and the whole beauty of the mosque lies in the splendid contrast of the red rich sandstone against the white marble court. To enhance the scene here are a long row of worshippers, bending and rising in unison, saluting the earth and crying out with one voice in response to the priest who is under the portico, and other barefooted worshippers are hurrying from the tank, after performing their ablutions, to join them. On every Friday, some 10,000 souls cover the court of the Friday mosque. The tack, or niche of the Qibla, is beautifully carved, and the pulpit, consisting of three panels, is hewn out of one splendid block of marble. It is from here that the priest gives the well-known salutation of the faith, Allah, Allah, and the response comes intoned back from the multitude, Jili Julali. In a corner of the court they opened a casket of relics for us to see, a parchment written by Hussein and Hassein, the grandsons of Mahomet, a shoe of the Prophet, his footprint on a stone, left while healing the sick, and lastly, most precious of all, a single hair from his beard. Mahomet must have had a very red beard. The beggars of Delhi are a proverbial for their importunity, and on the steps of the mosque they glean a rich harvest. The maimed, the halt, the blind, pursued us till we were fain to take refuge in the carriage from the armless stumps, the twisted and distorted limbs that were thrust forward to excite our pity. Not less troublesome are the hawkers and vendors, who swarm everywhere in the verandas of the hotels, but nowhere worse than at Delhi. They leave you no peace, pursue you everywhere, and even insinuate themselves in at your bedroom door. They are the pest of Indian travellers. Driving in the afternoon through the Queen's Gardens, the abode of the horrid yellow pariah dogs of the city, we reached the outskirts of the town and came to the old fort made five hundred years old. It consists of some ruined walls, so massive that, Judging from the aperture of the loopholes, they must have been at least eleven feet thick. On the top of a large pile of ruins, nobly placed, stands the lat, or staff of Feroz Shah, 
another of Asukar's columns. It is like those we have seen at Benares and Alalabad, only this one is of more ancient date, being 2,200 years old. The lat is a single shaft of sandstone, tapering very slightly towards the top. The inscription in Pali, the oldest language in India, is almost illegible, but it consists of certain edicts for the furtherance of religion and virtue, enacted by a king called Duma Asoka Piyadasi, who must have changed his character after ascending the throne, which he only reached by the murder of the ninety relations who had prior claims. A kite perched on its broken summit, looking curiously monumental, and there were others sitting in solemn rows on the ruins around, with heads turned towards the commissariat building below, whence they were expecting their daily meal of refuse. Others were also swooping around the river banks, waiting for one of the dead bodies, which are so frequently seen floating down the Jumna. We returned to the town and found our way through a very slummy lane to a beautiful little gem, a giant temple, most exquisitely carved outside, though this was almost hidden and lost in the narrow street and the shadow of the overhanging houses. We passed the passage leading round to the further side of the temple, where the women worship apart from the men. Lately we have been seeing many mosques and temples with cupolas, domes, and minarets of all sizes and forms. But now we see one of a totally different design. There is a kind of cupola with a gilded top, but it is a very squat one, and the effect produced is as by a cushion crushed down by the weight of a crown. The idol, with legs doubled under him, is sitting cross-legged under the canopy, inlaid with gold leaf. Jayan, the god, was naked, and in this he differs from the Hindu gods, who are always represented clothed. This used to give rise to serious riots on the day in the year when Jayan was paraded through the streets in procession, the Hindus pelting him with mud, and a free fight generally ensuing between the different followers. A military force is brought out now on this day of the year for the protection of Jayan at the expense of his believers. The Hindus also parade their god Ganesh once a year on June the 17th and we went to see the juggernaut car used on this occasion and kept in a stable adjoining the Jama Mosque. The car is entirely covered with gold leaf and cost, it is said, £25,000. We noticed particularly the several railings which surrounded the seat of the god, placed there by the priests to catch the money thrown to him in the streets. It is drawn by four prize bullocks, who have been previously fattened on an allowance of from four to five pounds of melted butter daily, conveyed to them through the trough of a hollow stick. On our way home we drove through the Chandi Chalk, it is the finest native bazaar in India, the street being a mile long and so broad that there is room for four avenues with two roads and three pavements. In the Chauk there is the Kot Valley and the little mosque perched up among the roofs of the houses where Nadia Shah sat and ordered the massacre in which he killed a hundred thousand people. Midway the street is intersected 
and the harmony of the quaint old houses with their overhanging wooden balconies much disturbed by the modern red building of the delhi museum and institute and by the gothic clock tower immediately opposite it was in the chandy chok that we bought some of those lovely embroideries in gold and silver thread on satin and velvet for which delhi is justly celebrated we saw also some very valuable cashmere shawls one being valued at four thousand rupees wednesday january the twenty eighth a tremendous thunderstorm with hailstones as large as beans kept us awake during part of the night the lightning shone in from the little windows high up in the wall and was the most vivid i have ever seen when morning came we thought the weather was going to fail us for the first time since we have been in india so violent was the downpour of rain but by eleven it cleared and we were able to start with a fine sky for our eleven miles drive to the kutub column there are a multitude of things to be seen on the way and it would be hard to surpass in interest the drives about delhi endless are the antiquarian remains that are scattered about the plain for miles around they are all ruins of old delhis for nine separate cities have at different times been built and abandoned within a radius of twenty miles of the present one thus as you drive along the ruin of an old fort or the remains of a city wall are pointed out to you as delhi number four or delhi number eight our driver chose that we should not stop as is customary outside the grand fort of the old delhi the most ancient of all the ruins and see the mosque inside the octagonal library where the emperor humayun met his death by falling down the stairs of the tower a mile further on we come to the tomb of the emperor a splendid mausoleum standing in a garden it is rendered so imposing from the huge chabutra of red sandstone on which it stands open to the surrounding country in the centre of the circular room under the dome is the plain sarcophagus of the emperor the father of akbar as usual the surrounding rooms forming the corners of the circular room are full of the tombs of the wives sons and daughters of the great man and in one corner side by side are the tombs of five mullahs the trellis work is shown of one of the windows where it was broken by captain hodgson on the capture of the king of delhi in eighteen fifty seven the king had taken refuge in the corner pointed out behind a bronze door and the window was broken as being an easier access a bright blue enamelled dome near here is supposed to have been the residence of the begum's bangle cellar and a brick one adjoining that of the royal barber this might have been the case for these eastern mausoleums were often used as palaces previous to the death of the person by whom they were built then we drove on to a spot which is literally a village of the dead so closely serried are the marble sarcophagi and where little courts and mosques and mausoleums are visible in all directions our chief wish in coming here was to see the grave of jehanara begum the eldest daughter of shah jahan whose story is so simple and touching she became a religieuse very young and declared her intention of never marrying on her father's disgrace 
Jehanara shared his prison and captivity. She is buried here, and her grave is a plain grass one, and the inscription at its head, dictated by herself, tells us the reason. It says, Let no rich canopy cover my grave. This grass is the best covering for the tomb of the poor spirit. The humble, the transitory Jehanara, the disciple of the sects of the Chistis, the daughter of the Emperor Shah Jahan. Here also Prince Jenangir, a son of Akbar II, is buried, who was exiled by the English government on account of his frequent attempts to murder his brother, and who is said to have died from his excessive love of cherry brandy. He was the favourite son of the Emperor, who always believed that he died of sighing. The celebrated Persian poet Amir Khusran lies nearby, and these, with many other tombs, are surrounded by that exquisite marble trellis work that forms the most beautiful feature of Mussulman architecture. These tombs lie around or in a small marble court of great purity, from the centre of which rises a tiny dome of marble, whose octagonal angles are marked with black lines. An open colonnade, with satasenic arches richly carved, show us the tomb of that most sacred Mohammedan saint, Nizam-ud-Din, within, whose sanctity still draws bands of pilgrims to his tomb. The wooden canopy of the tomb is inlaid with exquisite mother-of-pearl, that in the dim light looked iridescent, with opal tints of blue and green and purple. A row of ostrich eggs were hung around, and a Koran stood open at his head. The mosque, six hundred years old, and very quaintly carved, completes this little world, where so much of interest lies gathered into such small compass. The Chazat Kumba is nearby, the sixty-four pillared hall, as it is called, which number is only made up by the cunning device of counting the four sides to each of the square pillars. Returning, we look into a baoli, or well, a deep tank walled in all round, containing green and slimy water. The crowd of natives who always accompany the Ferengis, Europeans, point upwards, and on the summit of the kiosk of a mosque, forty feet above us, we see a man who, as we look, takes a run and a header into the water. It seems quite a minute that we watch him falling through the air, with his legs wide apart, bringing them quickly together, just as he plumps into the water with such thudding force that you think he must be crushed or cracked by the volition of his own weight. He is up in a moment. The tank being very deep, the diver only goes a few feet down and does not reach the bottom. Then he comes up the steps, shivering and with teeth chattering for his bakshish. On account of the height of the surrounding buildings, the sun never reaches this tank for more than three or four hours each day, and the water is intensely cold. And now we have a drive of some four or five miles before us. The ruins cluster thickly about the country here, and we see many of the small mosques which mark the site of a Mohammedan cemetery, with their old gravestones and white pillars, which show, they say, the spot of a sati over the grave. A tremendous storm overtook us before we reached the dark bungalow where we were to have tiffin.
We went at once to the Kutub Minar, or pillar, the loftiest column in the world, or 234 feet high. But its chief interest is not derived from this, but from its extreme beauty and unique character. Pillars and columns there are all over the world, from the Pillars of Hercules to the monument near London Bridge, but none so beautiful, so original, so rich as the Kutub Minar of Delhi. In the first place, it is built of full-coloured red sandstone, and in the second, it is fluted. But the fluting does not convey the curious and effective pattern, seen nowhere else, I think, of a fluting alternately round and angular. The Kutub tapers, as all such mighty erections must, that the laws of equilibrium may be carried out in their broad base. It is divided into five stories by the balconies which run round in a zigzag and which are supported by a bracket where each angle touches the column. But the distance between these balconies diminishes in proportion to the diameter of the shaft, thus adding to the apparent height of the column by exaggerated perspective. The first story, or the ground floor, is polygonal, with the fluting in alternate rows of acute angles and rounded semicircles. The second is entirely semicircle. The third, all acute angles. The fourth is a circle of white marble, a curious anomaly. And the fifth is just a band of carving, surmounted by the railed enclosure of the summit. These alternate flutings give an irregular appearance to the horizontal lines of the pillar when seen at a little distance off, and the base also appears to bulge out much at the sides where it enters the ground. Maintaining the idea of the symmetry of the gradually ascending but decreasing scale, all the delicate Arabic inscriptions, the bands of the Koran surrounding the Minar are arranged as follows. Six are on the lowest, two are on the second, and one on the third story, but none above on the next, where the marble band replaces them. The top band on the lower story gives the ninety-nine names of God in Arabic, and the remainder are variously verses from the Koran or praises of Mulhabid bin Sam. Twice the Qutub has been struck by lightning, once in 10,068 and again in 1503, as recorded in an inscription. But now it is made safe from such damages by the lightning rod, which we see at the bottom, and meet again at the top of the 375 steps. Some idea is given of its narrowing proportions, when I say that three men can easily stand abreast on the lower steps, whereas here at the summit one man can with difficulty pass. The view over the plain of Delhi in its utter flatness reaching even to the horizon, is very uninteresting and disappointing on account of the weary toil up. The Hindus claim the Kutub as of their erection and say it was made by Prithi Raj to enable his daughter to see over the plains to the sacred Ganges. Other think it is Mohammedan and certainly the inscriptions must have been added by them. Looking up to the Kutub, we noticed a curious effect that the clouds moving quickly across the sky gave to the tower the appearance of shifting instead. Near the Kutub Minar is a similar column, commenced to match the other, but left unfinished, it is now falling into decay. As usual, 
minor antiquities cluster round the greater one, and near the Kutub is the tomb of the Emperor Altinash, the supposed builder of the column, and the palace of the Emperor Alauddin, which has a very beautiful horseshoe arch. This is considered the first specimen of Patan architecture extant, but the principal interest here is a mosque constructed from the remains of 27 Hindu temples by the first Mohammedan king of Delhi in 1193. The Hindu columns that have been used by their successors to form the thick row of cloisters are most admirably and quaintly carved. Gods and mythological features form the chief feature, but in one corner we see a bullock cart, where the tyre and spokes of the wheel are very distinct. In another some men pounding millet, while monkeys form the brackets, or the head of a bull the ornamentation for a capital. In the centre of this ruined temple stands the iron pillar of the famous legend. It rises twenty-two feet above the ground, and it has been proved by excavation that its foundation is at least sixty-two feet below the surface. Raja Pithora consulted the Brahmins, or priests, as to the length of his dynasty. They replied that if he could sink an iron shaft into the earth and pierce the snake god Lishe, who upheld the earth, it would endure for ever. Time elapsed, and the Raja became curious to know the result of the sinking of his iron shaft, and against all Brahminical warnings had the pillar uprooted. Great was the consternation when it was found that the end was covered with blood was hastily put back again into the earth but the charm was broken the kingdom of pithora was shortly conquered his life taken and no hindu king has ever reigned in delhi since it was a pretty sight to see the sacred goats living above the temple looking down over the ruined wall on a caravan of camels whose drivers had gone up the tower when some took the opportunity for saying their prayers when they came down again I suddenly thought what a good opportunity this would be to try riding on a camel. Seated on the edge and hindermost point of his back, it was an awful moment when the camel sat forward on his front knees and then rose to the full length of his forelegs. Then I was at a very acute and ticklish angle, and he took his time, too, to raise his hind legs and bring me to a comfortable level once more. The motion is easy and pleasant, though it makes your head waggle in a ridiculous way, when taken at the slow, deliberate walk that the driver carefully led me. But I can well imagine the agony of the trot, when no action of your body can keep time or swing with such an incomprehensible motion. The worst part, undoubtedly, is the getting off. Down goes the first division of the animal, the legs to the knees, and then the second, at which the body rests on the ground, when you are in danger of being precipitated over his head. Lastly, the hind legs subside, and you slide off over his tail. At the word of command, he performs these various evolutions, but it is generally accompanied by a discontented snort and grunt. I like the deliberate way the beast always walks, without affected turning of the head from side to side, and the nose disdainfully held high in the air. In returning home, we passed the beautiful white dome of the mausoleum of Sajjah Jang, 
but though beautiful outside, there is nothing to see in the interior, and we were fairly weary of mosques, mausoleums, and tombs today. Nor did we linger at the Junta Mundia, or observatory, as we had seen that finer one of Benares. From the distance we traced its gigantic sundial, and the two towers exactly alike, with the pillars that mark the 360 degrees, so that one observation could be corrected by the other. Needless to say that we were extremely tired at nightfall. Thursday, January the 29th, we drove up onto the ridge, seeing Ludlow Castle of mutiny fame, in front of which was stationed Battery Number 2, which was to open the main breach by which the city was stormed. Here also is the Flagstaff Tower, to which the ladies of the station were first taken when the hope of speedy relief from Meirut was yet with them. It is a fitting and commanding situation for the red brick monument erected to the British and native troops who died in action of wounds or of disease during the mutiny, by their comrades who lament their loss and the government they served so well. The ridge is also celebrated for a well-known Pacific measure of our times, for it saw the great Durbar of the 1st of January, 1877, when the Queen was proclaimed Empress of India. It and the surrounding plain presented a marvellous sight, covered with the tents of Rajas and Maharajas, and of the thousands gathered there, forming the largest camp that had ever been seen. We left Delhi that morning. In the afternoon, we had a very interesting meeting at Ghazabad with Syed Ahmed Khan, CSI, the founder and honorary secretary of the Mohammedan Oriental College, and who is looked up to by all the Mohammedans of India as their intellectual head. He came thus far to meet us, and travelled back with us to Aligur, where the college is situated, as being most central for all parts of India. This allowed C having two hours' conversation with him, and learning much about the great Mohammedan community of India. We reached Agra late that evening, about ten o'clock, when we made our visit to the Taj by moonlight. End of section 38